When we hear the words, once upon a time, in a land far, far away, we know what kind of story we're listening to. That it's a fairy tale or a folk tale, something of that nature, some kind of fantasy. The whole point of the phrase, once upon a time, and in a land far, far away, is it's an indefinite time and place, when and where this story is taking place. Contrast once upon a time with how our gospel begins today. Just taken from the third chapter in St. Luke's gospel, when he begins, when he transitions from the infancy narratives, beginning in chapter 3, he starts talking about Christ's public ministry. Here's how it begins. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, when Herod was tetrarch in Galilee, when his brother Philip was tetrarch in these regions to the north and, and east of Galilee, when Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. I mean, could Luke be any more specific, any more precise? No one reading the opening lines of chapter 3 would think they're about to read a fairy tale. Right? Luke tells us precisely when and where these events take place. When do they take place? When does Christ's public ministry begin? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, he became emperor of Rome in 14 AD. That would put us at 29 AD, 30 years-ish after the birth of Christ. That by itself would be enough, but Luke for some reason, sees the need to add more. He gives us Pontius Pilate. We all know Pilate. We say his name every Sunday in the Creed when he was governor of Judea. He lists off several other political figures and even two religious figures, religious leaders of the day. And then, of course, he tells us where in the desert he means the Judean wilderness around the Jordan River, a place that very much still is in existence today. But let's ask this question, why is Luke so precise and detailed? And it's because he is dealing with true history, with events that really took place. Because Luke isn't writing some fantastical myth mythology Luke wants to communicate that something extraordinary happened. And it really and truly happened in history. God, the creator and maker of all things, intervened in the most dramatic of ways, becoming a man like us in all things but sin to save us from our sins. And when he had matured and come to the fullness of years, he began his public ministry with John the Baptist as his forerunner. And Luke offers this detailed rundown of political and religious authorities to teach us and to emphasize that this gospel is not a legend or a myth. It's not a fantasy or a fairy tale, but it's a true account. It's real history. Jesus is a historical figure, truly walked on this earth. He truly is God incarnate. He truly died and rose from the grave. In Jesus, God breaks into history and the most dramatic of ways to save us from our sins. Why does that matter? Well, there are people today who would argue the opposite. 
You know, I think five or six years ago, Washington Post published an article from a religious studies scholar arguing Jesus never existed, that he was a myth. And this is really a fringe theory um, in the academic world. Uh, even academics, religious scholars who are atheist or agnostic, they'll readily admit, yeah, there's more evidence that Jesus existed than, say, Alexander the Great and no rational person would dispute Alexander the Great existed. And we're not just talking the New Testament. There are non-Christian historians who write about Jesus of Nazareth and talk about his crucifixion and talk about how his followers continued to proclaim his message and claimed he had risen from the dead. But nonetheless, when I came across this article, I wanted to read it and see what his actual argument was. And he said, well, there aren't any good sources attesting eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And you think, well, what are the Gospels? And he dismisses the Gospels because he says they're clearly fiction. What does he mean by clearly fiction? He's talking about miracles. He's ruling those out as impossible. That Jesus walked on water, that he healed the sick, that he cast out demons, that he rose from the grave. He's ruling them out as impossible. And he's really showing his philosophical cards here. He's assuming either that God cannot or will not intervene in history. That's a big assumption. Where is it written that God cannot or will not intervene in history? All of salvation history, all of Judaism, all of Christianity is saying God spoke, he intervened, he revealed himself. He has a plan for our salvation that has been unfolding from all eternity. And perhaps that's why Luke was so emphatic at the beginning of chapter 3. He's also the same way talking about the infancy narratives. Going into overkill, the list off, the when and where this took place to emphasize this really happened. This is not a myth a legend, a fantasy, a fairy tale. This really happened. God acts and intervenes in the world. And we also get a glimpse of, of God's activity in the world with the remainder of this gospel, something that might have more of an immediate impact for us as well. Because after Luke goes through this political and these political and religious authorities, he tells us that the word of God came to a man named John, the son of Zechariah, living in the desert. And then John began to go and proclaim his baptism of repentance. What does this show us? It shows us that the one driving the action is God. It's God who, whose word came upon John, who inspired him to go and proclaim the baptism of repentance. It's God, who moves history, inspires prophets, prepares the way for his Messiah, and gathers together the church. Jesus himself is the divine word who is made flesh. You know, in him, God is fully revealed. He told us and gave us his all, giving us, uh, offering us the most precious gifts of his truth and mercy. God is active still, of course, still. In this life, he is always the one who takes the initiative. 
Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open it, my Father and I will come to dine with him and, and he with us. He is seeking us out. And it's up to us to respond to that invitation. John the Baptist responded. And he's going out to call others to respond, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. It's an invitation to accept the great gift he offers us, that we too can one day see the salvation of God dawn upon our very life. So how do we accept that gift? Uh, that gift's really at the heart of Advent. And I would say one way that's good, it might sound very challenging for some, is to spend time with the Word of God. And in particular, I'm thinking of the book of Isaiah. It's a book that is tied intimately to Advent. Because in Isaiah, you see prophecy after prophecy given 700 years before the birth of Christ, fulfilled seven centuries later. You see God's word is active. God is unfolding this plan of salvation 2,700 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and he continues to unfold it today. And we have a part to play in it. So we must respond to the Baptist cry to prepare the way for the Lord to make straight the paths in our own heart and soul for him. Brothers and sisters, this Advent, let us not be fooled by the voices in our culture trying to sow doubt about this most important of all truths, that in Jesus, God breaks into history in the most dramatic of ways. He comes to save us. It is no fairy tale. It is no myth. It is no fiction, it's the truth. So let us prepare the way in our hearts and souls so that we can receive the incarnate word of God anew this Christmas.